Hello, I'm one of your hosts, Natalia Pinzon-Jimenez, and welcome to Farmers Build Fire Resilience, a special podcast series brought to you by the Farmer Campus, the Community Alliance with Family Farms, and the Farmers Guild. In this series, you'll travel with us to the fields and back in order to hear stories from farmers, ranchers, and community members impacted by increasingly devastating wildfires in the Western United States. We hope these stories of loss, rebuilding, and resilience will help us face a future with fire together. Today, in episode two, we'll hear from Samantha and Cheetah of Turkey Tail Farm in Butte County, California. I'm Samantha Zangrilli. I'm Cheetah Chudi. Together, we are Turkey Tail Farm. We were first founded in 2008, where we moved to a raw piece of property in the foothills of Butte County. We started from scratch, just an existing wellhead, so we established power, our pump house, and again, building infrastructure and fences. Our mission is really a diversified farm. We have raised, we used to raise, lamb, pork, chicken, duck eggs, gourmet mushrooms, cut flowers, and value-added herb products. The premise behind the farm is doing things in synergy, never using anything just once, and so exactly Examples of that would the byproduct of our mushroom farming operation, basically the leftover substrate from farming mushrooms. We would recook that and then use it as a feed supplement for our poultry. Our poultry, which were pasture raised, would then deposit manure onto the pasture and strengthen the pasture for the sheep that came behind them. The manure from the pig operation would then go to feed the flower farm and then when we pull weeds from the flower farm, we would then feed those to the sheep as supplemental feed. So really by doing things smaller scale with a greater diversity, we tried to make it more profitable in the end at that scale. So yeah, we do this as a married couple. We built our own home and barn. We did it paycheck to paycheck, basically taking odd jobs as farmers tend to do as necessary to build it up. A lot of salvage, I milled a lot of my own lumber for some of it. And then 2014, I quit my job in town and started farming full time. And so then we started our CSA back up. We started selling to grocery stores, farmers markets, and then I did supplemental craft fairs and pop-up shops. And then of course, private sales where I would just deliver to people's houses as much as possible. And just prior to the fire, we were on the menu at several restaurants with our mushrooms as well. We were just about done with infrastructure building. Like we had finally had a barn to store all of our equipment. We finally had Pretty much all the equipment we would need from a meat grinder to a mill, to an Alaskan mill, chainsaws, fans, supplies. My mom always said farmers have their own hardware store. So we were built, pretty much building up to that, which is what you want. You want to be self-sufficient. And we're first generation farmers. So Cheetah's parents bought this land in 2007, like you said. And so we didn't really have anything. We didn't take any loans. We were going to do a workshop series, and we started to do workshops as well, just teaching mushroom cultivation. On our end, yeah. So yeah, November 8th. We'd been through forest fires before, like it's kind of expected up here. We spend a lot of our time brush clearing with assistance from the Natural Resource Conservation Service, like doing their conservation grants. So we're pretty, you know, fire savvy. This was my third evacuation from the farm, so when we saw the plume of smoke and looked on the fire maps, we were pretty comfortable first thing in the morning. It's like, okay, that's, you know, Camp Creek Road. That's two days away at least. You know, I was reticent to even start prepping to leave. But as the morning went on, we realized this was a little different. So 
Uh, we started hitching up trailers and uh, loading what livestock we could. The power went out and that's when we decided that we were going to load up our freezer full of meat because we had just gotten done with harvest chickens. We just finished harvesting 75 chickens or at least oh, 200, yeah. somewhat something like that, two days before the fire. So we loaded up all of our meat um, and we didn't have any water as well. In August, our well tends to go dry because and it, we over the years, we've realized that the row crops pretty much take a lot of the water so we've done different things like invested in more water storage and gotten a pool so we could irrigate our crops so we were in the process of irrigating our crops with the pool so the pool really had no water in it or else we would have stayed but we had nothing to fight the fire with and it was we were lambing so all of our ewes we had like five lambs already on the ground and at least seven more ewes pregnant i couldn't justify staying here with all the smoke and the hazard with all the babies. So we loaded up as many animals as we could. I got 60 ducks. I ran out of space, basically. Couldn't find anything else to put them in. And then my father-in-law's car had all the meat products and tubs. My mother-in-law's car had all the domestic animals, including cats. Cheetah's car had more ducks and sheep and baby lambs. Our, we had an intern at the time, a farmhand. So he hitched up a trailer to his Jeep, had ducks, all my herbal products, because I had just gotten done labeling them and bottling them, and they were in my fridge at my house. I was like, oh my God, well, let's load this up too. You know, if anything happens, we can at least sell it and make some income. Because we do a huge sale in uh, December, Christmas sale. We make a lot of money from this sale. So that's what we were prepping for. And uh, also managed to get a freezer on his trailer and a bale of hay because so we just bought a bale of alfalfa and I was like, we're probably going to need this. And then and then we were like, okay, it's one o'clock, it's time to go. And we... We started hearing propane cylinders exploding on the other ridge. We started seeing some flames kind of lick over. We're right across from Paradise, basically just over the lake from there. And so when we saw flames in Central Paradise, and as well, we had, had law enforcement and fire department tell us to get out of here. And indeed, as we went up the road, we saw the fire rolling down the hill. So it was a very long journey there. And then we still had to go to North, North Chico. Mm -hmm. North Chico, because we didn't bring any electric fences at the time. Typically, like in the past when we get evacuated, it's like two, three days maybe that we're out. So, you know, you split a couple sacks of feed, leaving a bale out, and you can feel pretty secure that you're gonna be home in a couple days. Something about the campfire, they couldn't get it out. And even when they were starting to get containment, they were reluctant to let people back in. Thankfully, our Ag Commissioner went to bat for commercial farmers and they got us this special permit that got me back into basically the active burn area. So grabbed a sheepdog, loaded up on feed and hay. I knew a neighbor that had a pretty strong well and a generator and he was coming in at the same time. So networked with him and started trailering water from his property to mine because our whole water infrastructure had burned to the ground, like two 5,000 gallon tanks, the pump house, all the electrical had completely burned to the ground. So even if I could fire up the pump, there was no real way to wire it up, at least at that time. And so yeah, just drove straight back into the burn scar and to my great surprise, all the sheep and all the pigs had survived. It was pretty much chaos. I mean, by all accounts for the first several days, they weren't exactly fighting the fire. They were just trying to get people out. There wasn't an option for containment in a very real way. And so yeah, my job during those 26 days was to bury materials back and forth. Basically, uh, all the fences were smashed by a tree that had fallen with it. So day two, I came up with my chainsaw and started removing trees from the fences, gathering up what electric fences hadn't burned, any materials that I could rebuild my gates with, and basically herded all these pigs and sheep back into one big pen. And then from there, I figured out a clever way to get my trailer 
onto the property so that I could export the last of the sheep and just get them harvested, get it done because there was too much to handle. And yeah, it was just- Well, he was doing this, I was in town. We were basically separated the whole time, the whole 26 days, cause he was up here taking care of all of this. And I was in town taking care of all those animals cause we were still evacuated and not allowed to bring anything back. And um, so I was taking care of all the sheep. I was putting them in my best friend's landlord's orchard that wasn't taken care of. So I had to like cut back all the trees before I could even get the, the sheep in there. And they were still lambing. I had a premature lamb at the time, so I had a bottle baby and I had to put a diaper on it. It's the first time I've ever diapered a livestock animal. <laughs> but I, it's a, it was okay. I got free diapers, thank the Lord, or else I wouldn't have done it. And um, I got goat milk from a crazy goat lady in town. Um, and we traded. I traded her cat food that I was getting. So it all worked out. <laughs> and my friends were very chill. They thought it was adorable. So that worked out too. Because there was so many animals in their house and they had beautiful hardwood floors. And my, I, my ducks were in their pasture and I had to take care of the guardian dogs every morning. And I was basically just finding us relief, trying to go to, everything was gone. We left with basically nothing. I grabbed like some socks for him and sweatpants and a pair of shorts for me. So I was getting us clothes and toiletries and lots of donated items. I, we immediately came up with our, our story in email form and sent it out to all these people because we had just made huge purchases. We had just purchased a steel roof for our side barn. Well, we had refabricated the greenhouses, put new floors in those, and those melted down. Yeah, so, I, and just pleading to, to um, Johnny's for supplies and uh, Premier One sheep supplies because we didn't have any fences anymore. And through all of that, we were able to get lots of discounts, which is great. A laminar flow hood for cheetah from Fungi Perfecti. So that's basically what my role was, was like, how are we gonna be able to pay to get our lifestyle back again, everything that we worked so hard for for seven years. Because if you had insurance, we were not insured then you do, you have a chunk of money that you can just go and buy your life with again, buy the things that you need for your business again. And then it's a relatively easier to go on with business because you can get back to your life faster. So after the 26 days, basically martial law was lifted, the military police left, the cops abandoned their blockades and we were allowed to come home. We were able to buy a fifth wheel trailer and get it brought onto the property. The day that the evacuation was lifted, so that was really lucky. Um, but still no functional running water or power really on the property. And then as this all kind of happened, FEMA and Butte County got into a disagreement about what could happen in the burn scar. Basically, Butte County said, Paradise residents, you're welcome to go home, hook up to your septics and reestablish your life there, even though it's in the burn scar. FEMA turns around and says, well, Butte County, if you're gonna allow your citizens to return to a disaster area, we're gonna pull our funding. So basically it's like a $1.4 billion threat to FEMA to pull out and not do the cleanup program. So all these people that had moved their trailers home were now forced to leave. And I myself had pulled a permit to reestablish our power to put in a new power panel and basically Butte County was not going to come out and inspect. Even if I did the work, they weren't gonna come and take a look until our debris removal is done because we have our burnt down pump house. Basically six months, we were trailering water onto the property, running generators for both my needs and my parents' needs. Thankfully, I've got a friend who's a contractor and uh, he helped in the Katrina recovery. So he was really well poised uh, to take on the situation. 
So him and I teamed up and uh, we started going to county offices and figuring out how private contractors could be eligible for the cleanup program. The other thing that we kind of made a priority right away was getting the mushroom program back on track. So even before we were approved for debris removal, I purchased a cargo trailer and began to retrofit it as a mushroom cultivation space. And so we now are producing mushrooms again. We're getting them back into restaurants and farmers markets. We took our burnt down greenhouses and put them on the slab foundation of our home just for a little bit more hygienic, clean setup. So that's a small luxury in the face of the disaster. It was kind of an upgrade for the greenhouse setup. And then as another kind of byproduct of this experience, I've gotten a nonprofit sponsor and I'm attempting to do a program which offers free bioremediation services to individuals living in the burn scar that have a situation where perhaps their main structure didn't burn, but say they lost vehicles or outbuildings. And in this circumstance, you might not be eligible eligible for the Cal OES cleanup, the public cleanup program. And what happens in that circumstance is Butte County gives you a little certificate that says you're allowed to take your own ash and debris to the dump and you're on your own for removal of that debris. So you're paying a record to take your car away, you're hauling your burnt sheet metal to the dump yourself. The problem I see there is that no requirement for soil testing is there. And even if you did soil test, the notion of removing soil is cost prohibitive. I mean, it's so expensive to take soil to the dump right now. And so the idea that I'm working on and seeking sponsorship from a couple different organizations is basically I would come to your property, I'd test your soil for heavy metals as well as persistent organic contaminants, and then custom grow the fungi to break down or uptake those specific heavy metals and toxic hydrocarbons. So that's kind of the new nonprofit branch of the farm. Grant writing is slow going and people allocating grants move even slower, unfortunately, so we're still waiting money to drop for this program. But in the meantime, I'm also doing a no cost, basically it's a workshop on mushroom cultivation, bioremediation using fungi, and also has an overview of all the toxins generated. And so my hope is to not only be able to provide a direct response, help my fellow citizens of Butte County, but perhaps help develop a protocol, a best management practice that could be applied to the next fire. This might be the new norm for us. We have to be prepared for these types of scenarios in the future. So yeah, we're, we're hopefully getting out of the trailer. We're hoping to sell our trailer and get into our yurt for this winter just so we can get back to using wood-fired heat as opposed to propane. We've had to downsize our flock and are working on downsizing our pig operation, at least in the short term, so that we can have a little bit more energy for reestablishing infrastructure. Definitely turning the farm site a lot more towards mushroom cultivation, diversifying there and increasing volume. We're also kind of at least tapping the brakes on the flower program a little bit right now, sticking with just dried cultivars so that hydrosols is becoming a big one for us, which is the, when you make essential oils, there's a water fraction that comes out of that. And so that's like a basically a skincare product, aromatherapy type product. Mm -hmm. And then Sammy's been making a whole host of value-added herb products as well. I'm building in multiple redundancies for firefighting. So there's gravity feed systems for filling tanks, multiple generators and backup pumps so that we could either pump out of the pool, pump out of a separate storage tank, have a mobile trailer as a firefighting rig that way. And then I've also built in switch on our main pump house that Basically, at any time we can throw the switch and the power goes out and still be able to run our entire pump system. 10,000 gallons worth of storage, which is far more than any water truck carries. And not to let one of our tanks, we're always going to leave one of our tanks full. We're always going to leave the pool full now. Also purchasing insurance. 
even though it's incredibly difficult now, even before the fire, because of the 2008 fires, it was hard to find insurance. But now there's only one company after three months of two agents searching for me, and it's almost $3,000 a year. So it's gone up a lot, but it's worth it. It's taught us that it's worth it, and it won't always be that high. Well, it might go higher as we buy more stuff. That's the thing. More infrastructure we build. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, coming back to your original question, it's my teachers always taught me like my mentors a good farmer adapts you know if chico has a glut of tomatoes in the summer you work the edges of the season you be the guy at the market with the latest season tomatoes and the earliest season tomatoes and we've been you know this is trial by fire and literally forcing us to reckon that it's like okay everything that we've built in the last 10 years is basically gone we have to radically change our approach if we're going to continue to want to do this and so you know going with a rapidly growing organism like a mushroom or you know perhaps striking the poultry program from our farm for a while because it requires a lot of infrastructure requires a lot of time and we know we need that extra time to rebuild our home being livestock farmers is the other challenges that you are on seven days a week there is no saturday sunday knockoff the pigs need to be fed and watered every day. The sheep always have to, you know, at least get eyes on them, even if they have plenty of pasture, you know. Livestock guardian dogs need their ears checked and their neck checked for tip. These animals that have always been an asset to us. I think as livestock farmers, we have a lot more flexibility. And I think we have the ability to be a lot more nimble than some of the big ag folks. Uh, we're kind of, we're feeling for some of our friends down the road right now too, because there was a historical like little aqueduct that comes off of paradise and had a series of farms going out towards Oroville and pretty large scale farms as well. And that thing melted. And so now those people who have historically had these water rights, generations are now without water and they have no option. So being that we're small scale and diversified, I think we're a little more nimble other farms. The, the farm kind of in some ways is a divide and conquer operation. We I got the herbs and the garden and the sales. I do all the sales, pretty much all the farmers markets and pop-up shops and I initiate sales on social media. Ducks are pretty much all yours. We kind of share the sheep. Pigs are mine and then uh, mushrooms. And you're, if your program takes off, you're going to be in paradise. Yeah. And if my nonprofit gets sponsored to the level that I hope, I'm going to be off farm part of the time trying to do this micro remediation program where my, my hope there is to create kind of an open platform model that can be shared elsewhere and potentially be the guy that can do rapid response to other forest fires in the future. So yeah, I'm hoping that this program takes off again, both for short-term needs, but also pr provide a model for future fires. Well, that's all for today's episode of Stories from the Field. Thanks for listening and thank you, Samantha and Cheetah, for joining us today. Join us next week and we'll hear from more farmers and ranchers. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. Plus, if you haven't already enrolled in our online course for farmers, Farmers Build Fire Resilience, stop by our website at farmercampus.com and claim your seat now.